take a step back. Go to the more positive side. The more I dwell on it, it is robbing you of the time to do the positive things that can move you closer to what is important to you. Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. Dr. Austin Tay is an organizational psychologist with experience in business and management across a range of industries. Today, he consults to high-level leadership and human resource departments for many companies through his firm OmniSci Consulting. Dr. Tay is particularly interested in helping victims of workplace bullying by helping them to improve their psychological resilience and flexibility. Dr. Austin Tay, thanks for joining me. Thank you for inviting me, Dave. Oh, my pleasure. So uh, can you please uh, just introduce yourself uh, and tell me a little bit about your professional background and, and particularly how you became interested in organizational psychology? And then most importantly, what is an organizational psychologist? <laughs> okay, uh, sure. Maybe let, let me start with what an organizational psychologist is. It will be much easier. Um, an organizational psychologist is one of the uh, different aspects of psychology in general. Um, what we do as oxides, uh, for short, uh, we work with organization and also individuals uh, to help them to actually uh, perfect or rather uh, find ways to help their employees uh, and also help them to look at different uh, perspective in terms of their organizational structure, uh, may- maybe to actually advise them on uh, organization development uh, processes too. Uh, we work very closely with individuals in a organization setting uh, with issues like uh, selection, recruitment, uh, coaching, and also training. Uh, and m- more and more so, we are actually dealing with uh, well-being and mental health uh, at the same time. As, as you know, people working in organization uh, are also feeling a lot of stress, in particular in, in this uh, uh, situation where we are all going through a uh, unprecedented time of COVID-19. So in a kind of nutshell, this is what we do uh, as organization psychologists. Uh, coming back to the fact that uh, I, I uh, my interest in, in organization psychologists, uh, before becoming an organization psychologist, uh, I have worked in different industries. I have always dealt with uh, people in general with all my previous jobs. And one day it dawned on me that this is where I want to uh, pursue further. And I went to the UK to study uh, with psychology and part of my degree was also in law. So I was very fascinated with the combination of psychology and law. Uh, I must say during that, that, that period of time, there was a uh, interest in, in delving a little bit more into the uh, law and uh, pursue a legal profession. Um, but however, after doing that, I realized that um, it might be easier to actually come back to the light rather than being in the legal profession. And that's where I became an organization psychologist um, mm. and started practicing here in Hong Kong uh, and uh, doing what I've been doing since in 2008 to now. So this is mm. kind of a very short uh, intro of who I am. Yeah, fantastic. 
tell me a little bit more yourself. I mean, from what I, I, sure. I see and what I know so far from, from your podcast and also from your LinkedIn profile. So I've just finished the postgraduate, well, it's a graduate diploma in psychology. And so next year I am intending to continue into the master's program. Where it goes, I'm not sure. You know, my job is only as good as my health in many ways. So it's nice to have something else. So if I should uh, have to stop flying for some reason, then it's um, some something I could pursue yeah. more seriously. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I definitely, while I've been studying some of the clinical psychology aspects, which is, um, you know, I think is pretty foundational to any psychology program is to look at the whole range of fields that are covered by psychology. So I'm far more interested in uh, organizational psychology okay. and understanding the optimization of human performance, um, helping uh, at high, in high-performing teams, the sort of work you're doing, that sort of thing fascinates me. So rather than looking at the, say, the negative aspects of psychology, more of the uh, humanistic, positive psychology, how can we optimize human performance as opposed to always looking at what's wrong with people? I'll uh, just address the elephant in the room before we move forward. This is the COVID. You raised it before. So 2020, um, to say this year has been a challenge is an understatement, obviously. We've all been managing this in our own ways in our personal lives with school closures and all manner of um, social distancing and uh, closures of different uh, things we normally take for granted, uh, not to mention toilet paper shortages and everything else. So in terms of the workplace, we've probably seen no more impacts in our lives than and how we work and uh, whether that's say for me as a pilot obviously I'm not flying as much but office staff have been working from home meetings are no longer face to face we're slowly restoring some normality but it, it's going to ebb and flow as uh, these uh, the virus sort of continues to float around so how have you seen that in your work and what are some of the key things that you think people can take away from this sort of changed work landscape and how have you been thinking about that through the lens of organizational psychology mm. I think uh, while we don't enjoy being uh, doing social distancing and, and, and we kind of uh, succumbed by this pandemic, one thing for sure, uh, people are taking this time to recalibrate, right? to start thinking about, you know, maybe it's time to uh, review the way I work, review the way I have been spending so much time at work that I have not uh, spend time taking care of myself. And I see more and more people are thinking that way, uh, which, which is good because, you know, we know from research that uh, a lot of employees work in environment where it is very demanding and it affects their mental health, it affects their physical health. This is a good time for them to actually take time to think about themselves. And I, I've been seeing a lot of uh, individuals uh, taking a step back and then taking care of themselves more than they used to. Of course, the downside of this being uh, having this uh, pandemic where work and uh, work and actually home life has been kind of blurred in a sense because everybody is actually working from home and there is also an expectation that from the organizational side that you'll be there 24-7 to be on call, on Zoom calls, on, on WhatsApp, etc. because mm. you're not going anywhere anyway. So Mike, so just stay in front of the computer and do all the work. And I think mm. that has an implicit impact on employees because mm. the employees are thinking, well, if I don't appear on Zoom calls, if I'm not on this uh, 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 WhatsApp discussion, 
uh, I will be perhaps viewed as being lazy, mm. uh, being not dedicated. So, uh, mm. might I remind then to organization, you have a duty of care to your employees while they are contractually uh, bound by you for the work that they do. Uh, let's not forget that you also have to take care of their well-being. Mm. And this is where I think psychological contract comes in very, very uh, uh, aptly here, mm. which is an implicit uh, expectation on both sides of what they should be doing right? for the mm. organization. Of course, a lot of things that you don't write it on your uh, uh, contract, you expect maybe your employees to be giving more uh, motivation or giving more hours to the work if, if, if we are dealing with perhaps a, a, a crisis or mm. a project that really needs to get done, right? On the mm. other hand, for an employee, especially at this time, they would expect the organization to be able to take that step back and say, you know what? Yes, we appreciate this person doing this work, but we also need to draw the line that they need to take care of themselves. Mm. I mean, mm. the, the, the saying is, is, is very easy to, to, to actually look at is that if your employees are not uh, well, they are not physically there, they are not psychologically there, how then can they be efficient at work? Mm. They can't. Mm. So this is where I think organization, uh, while they're responding, and I, I, must, I must say that organization are responding to the, the crisis uh, very well, taking care of the, uh, uh, the employees, making sure that they don't come to work, social distancing measures are there, uh, they can go a little bit further and think about their uh, well-being, the psychological health of the individuals and let yeah. them have a bit of break. You know, don't get them on Zoom call all the time. Yeah. And one of the things I always remind people please do not be afraid to tell your colleagues that I work on a different time zone from you. Mm-hmm. Please do yeah. not expect me to wake up at 2 a.m. to have a phone call because you're in the States. Mm. And I always believe if you don't tell people how you feel, you don't share information with people, they expect you or they, they take it for granted because you are giving them the, uh, the permission to exploit mm. you in that way. So mm. I think as an employee, remember, you have the, the, the uh, right to tell your colleagues, can we reschedule this? Can we make sure that we don't do this at a time zone that is very uncomfortable for me? I've heard, and I've heard a lot of employees are telling me they have to stay up at 2 a.m. because someone in the States required this meeting. I said, well, then have you spoken to them about it? Mm. No, if I do that, it's going to reflect. I said, no. But if you're not in the right state of mind, mm. while you stay up for 2 a.m., you still have to be functional at 8 a.m. for your own job because mm-hmm. of your own time zone. So how do you equate that? So this is mm-hmm. where people start to forsake, right? And yeah. I think this is very dangerous. We we sort of have this idea, maybe it's rapidly fading away, to be honest, that eventually things will return to normal. But I think it's becoming increasingly apparent that the, the normal that we had will not be the normal that we return to, that yep. things have changed and uh, as a result of this. And potentially um, from more permanent decisions where companies Mm. have laid off staff, Mm. but also in just the way we do business now where we've seen people adapt to this uh, working from home. We've realized we can get by um, effectively enough without having face-to-face meetings all the time. Mm. 
So maybe the the post-COVID era is going to see quite a different workplace in many ways. And I ask the, the question, really, does this mean that we will see a change in the dynamic of the employee and what companies are looking for operating in that new environment? Mm. Uh, and I, I've sort of in my notes, I wrote the question, are we looking ahead to the rise of the introvert where workplace interactions and the persona that you bring in that uh, face-to-face sort of mm. workplace environment becomes less relevant? So mm. maybe people who work well at home by themselves, very productive, where they can have uh, a Zoom meeting here and there or send emails and uh, they feel more comfortable in that environment and therefore maybe they become more optimized for that type of mm. um, working environment. What mm. are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think this this whole pandemic has, as you rightfully said, changed the way we work. But I think remote working has always been been there, whether we have this pandemic or not. I think it goes down to the individual itself, what works for them. But I, w- I would probably say that human beings are social animals. Whether we do face-to-face or not, we need to have that connection, right? It's how you uh, make best of the situation itself. And post-COVID-19, uh, what is the new normal? Uh, it's still very uncertain. I think you will be seeing things will be changing in terms of how organization will be functioning. Uh, they will be actually perhaps not leasing uh, real estate anymore to accommodate people. They might actually use a different way of uh, working uh, and encourage more remote uh, working uh, in the next few years or so. And, and I think organization will take more time now to recoup the losses that they, they are suffering from the COVID situation here and i i don't want to sound pessimistic but i think we are going to be bracing ourselves for a different work environment and uh this is the time where as i said recalibrating is important and as for employees who might be thinking of exploring different opportunities or upgrading themselves do it at this present time where you have a lot of uh, time on your hands Go and learn something new. Who knows? Maybe when things are back to uh, normal, in inverted commas, uh, you have more options. You don't have to be uh, constricted by a job that you might not necessarily want to carry on working for. Uh, and you are creating more opportunities for yourself. And I think this is one, one thing that a lot of employees don't, don't really think about. Only when they have been let go, then they mm. panic. I think it's, it's, it's good to always consistently think about what else can I do? Maybe I want to upgrade myself. I look at different opportunities, right? This is very different from someone who is actually job hopping uh, from one job to another job. Mm. When we are going for, I mean, being pra- pragmatic about it, uh, when you are engaged in, in the work or you, you have a career, uh, it will come to a point where you will be very, very, uh, bored with it you, you feel you're stagnant you want to move forward right but because you've been devoting your time into this work for so many years you never thought about it and when you start to uh, think about changes it takes a longer time for you to get used to it so this is the best time to to, to do a lot of development for yourself and and training uh mm. why not i like this uh, optimism and you mentioned recalibration before i think these are really important tools we can use to work through this uh, while it's uncertain and there's fear and uh, it's frustrating. Uh, 
and we're becoming increasingly un- impatient with the st- restrictions put upon us mm. by changing our outlook and realizing that those are decisions that we can make for ourselves that we need not be victims or or just um, act um, in response to external events, but we can influence how yes. we um, interpret and understand and move yes. through these. And by looking yes. for opportunity mm. in, in difficult times, so mm. I think that's a really awesome bit of advice, which I think um, when I've listened to different podcasts and, and conversations with people about that, this has given them that chance to reflect and to pause and to really evaluate what's important and where they're going. And now it's like, okay, we've had that time. Now we want to move forward with that knowledge and that realization. Yep. So it's just how long is this going to last really? But mm. um, it's a great way to think about it. And and it's really the, the only tool we have is our own psychology in many ways to yeah. how we program ourselves to respond to yeah. um, environments we're in. Um, this leads me to – uh, sort of the next part is about motivation and engagement, which you were touching on then. And I think for many people have found themselves in very challenging circumstances, um, whether it's they've lost their jobs or altered um, pace situations and various things. And in my industry, we're seeing quite a lot of that now. And I asked a, a colleague yesterday, I, I said to him, I'm going to be talking to this organizational co- psychologist. What Do you have any questions? What would you like to ask him? And and as we were reflecting on sort of the struggles we've been going through in our own situation, he said, ask him, how do you remain motivated and engaged after you've suffered a setback? That's sort of mm. my paraphrasing of it. So okay. if, if you've found yourself in a situation at work where um, you haven't felt fairly treated or mm. you've... Uh, You've, you've suffered a setback and it could be bullying as well i know that's a, obviously a big interest of yours so um what tools can we use aside from what i mentioned about just taking control for your own mm. thoughts and and your approach is there anything else <laughs> we can do and or is there a point where employees they're too far gone that's it now mm. it's becoming destructive and counterproductive mm. in the workplace mm. I, I think in terms of keeping yourself engaged and motivated if you, you you have gone through a setback. First and foremost, um, I would always, always step away from that situation because ruminating is a very, very dangerous thing. When you start to rationalize and ruminate, why am I treated this way? Uh, could I have done something different? Oh, it's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. This is where you are digging yourself into that deep trench that you'll never be able to get out. And this is one thing one needs to be aware of and acknowledge that this is very very typical of human nature. We would do that because we want to feel good. We want to justify. Yeah. Now, once you recognize that is part of you, then you go back to values. What is the most important thing to you? This is where you re- rethink, why am I you know, feeling so dejected about this setback? Because it's in conflict of something. So this is where you go back to why are we thinking of work is important to us. We want to provide because it gives a better uh, lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. So this is important. Now, a setback, for example, you've been asked to go uh, because you're no longer needed. This is a blip in the whole process. Okay, so I can spend time thinking about it and feel sorry for myself, right? There'll be a time where you go, I need to do something. And this is the time where you start to take stock. What else can I do? Things that I cannot control, for example, I've been asked to go, this is something I can't control. I'm going to let it be. 
what can I control? That is, I am still capable of doing the things that I've been asked not to do, right, for leaving the job. Uh, I can still do other things. I'm still capable of doing other things. I have a brain. I can think about what other steps I can uh, take to make sure that I'm closer to my values here. And this is where you start making a plan. Of course, it sounds very easy. And you might, gonna, you might be asking me, well, obviously, you still be feeling sad about it. You're feeling uh, angry about it. Yes, that is emotions. That is just emotions, right? And emotions are just a sensation physiologically. It's because we uh, ascribe a label to all this uh, sensation. It becomes something that we start to catastrophize. We start to uh, ruminate and then we kind of blow things out of proportion. And then you go back to that sorry state again. You go back to the feeling sorry for yourself. Don't, right? Don't. And this is where it comes back to the word you will be able to take control. You'll be able to look at what is more important to you. Losing this this job or you're being treated unfairly in an organization itself. Okay, that's how that structure works. That's how the the organization functions. But that's not you, right? Mm-hmm. You just become a victim of it, but that's not you. Don't have to get yourself into that rut again and thinking I need to get something out of it. No, it's, it's, it's over. Mm-hmm. You have to move on with life. And, and that's what, why do we have maladaptive uh, thinking, thought processes, or we get so caught up with emotion? It's because we allow ourselves to dwell on it too long. Yeah. And as I said, it's easier said than done. And this is mm-hmm. where I always encourage people to take a step back, which I said earlier, take a step back from all the situation that you are you have gone through, okay? And look at it. Okay, so this has happened. What can I do next? I have a choice. I can really ruminate and be sad about it and get really, really angry about it, maybe trying to do things to uh, uh, fight for certain things or or uh, make myself feel good. But that takes a lot of energy. That mm. takes a lot of anguish. That takes a lot of you revisiting that, that, that unpleasant thing. Do you want mm. to go there? Ask yourself that question. Do you want to go there? If you do not want to go there, then let's go to the more positive side here. Mm. What is more important to me? Let's work towards that. All mm. these things will come because it's human nature. But the moment mm. you actually fall into that negative side of the things, of things, mm. step back again. Why am I doing this? Should I be doing this? Okay, mm. it comes, but I shouldn't be dwelling on it because the more I dwell on it, it is robbing you of the time to do the positive things that can move mm. you closer to what is important to you. Yeah, no, that, that's excellent advice. I, I think it is important to accept the way you're feeling mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of go through that process and give yourself permission to be upset, to be yeah. angry, to feel hurt and whatever it might be. But then set that aside and then move forward, not to, as you say, ruminate and get stuck in that spot because it's not productive to helping you. Because I think ultimately – and this is particularly apparent, I think, in professions where there's so much identity mm. invested in it. So, and again, I come back to the the pilot thing because that's what I know. And, mm. you know, there's so much identity, but I can imagine it's a similar for professions like lawyers and doctors and the things that we sort of have this vision of, mm. sort of a caricature of mm. a persona or a type of person that does that job. Mm. And whether uh, you, um, that, that, that develops or that that's, uh, 
you know, whether we kind of, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or it's something that is actually a thing, um, it's kind of irrelevant in some ways because it, it does happen. And if you are so invested in your position and your work, and that is who you are, as it were, yeah. your identity is inextricably tied together with that thing, and that's taken away or it's changed or you're undermined in that position for some reason, then I think that's also hard for people to sure. reconstruct. How do you reconstruct yourself mm. um, independent of mm. the identity that was associated with your work? So yes. maybe that process can be a bit harder at different times yeah. depending on the, the nature of it. Uh, and maybe an anticipation of those things happening, if you are in one of those careers or professions which is very identity-based mm. or you, you, it's very close to your – like the lines between personal and professional lives are blurred – then maybe you need to recognize that and start to find other things outside of that to prepare yourself for the yes. day when you're no longer doing that job, whether yep. you just retire or or maybe something bad happens and you can't do it mm. or you lose your job or whatever, or you have a setback at work so mm. that you say, well, yeah, work was tough or I'm going through a hard time at work, but I've still got my sports team. I've got mm. my my podcast, you know, my, exactly. whatever it might be that um, I, I know is more of who I am. It's not yes. my job. It's not all of who I am. So exactly. it's building those defenses in anticipation of maybe the day when you're going to really need those to help you through the harder times. Yes. I, and uh, you, 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 what you say was is actually entirely right. You know, we, we label ourselves with identity because we want to feel good to be part of a, uh, a group, right? So when you are no longer part of the group, we feel that, oh, we are actually not efficient anymore. We are nothing, etc. No, mm. remember you are make up of different identities, right? You're, you 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 kind of subscribe to different groups because you feel that you have something to contribute to. So really think a little bit deeper. You know, dig down. What do you have? What other skills do you have? You know, mm. right? You might not get this. You might not have this job anymore. But are your skills transferable? Of course, it is transferable. It's how you mm. look at it. Right, if you only get your your mindset so narrow, whatever you think, whatever uh, decisions that you make or, or uh, 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 innovation that you think of uh, or solutions that you think of is going to be narrow. You need to broaden it up because mm. all of us are so stuck with labels. We are so stuck with identity. We are so stuck with the kind of uh, uh, status that we don't realize that the process. How you got there is because mm. you have accumulated skills and experiences, mm. right? You don't just come to that point and that is, is not, uh, it doesn't epitomize who you are. You are very complex. Human beings are very complex. We are very resilient. We have uh, yeah. ability to pick up new skills. We have ability to rethink about the skills, how we can reapply our skills. As what mm. you said, don't have a job in this. You might be able to do podcasts. You might be actually focus your energy on a, a sports club or whatever. You, you know, these these are the things that you try to look at. Hey, I'm not an invalid. You know, I'm I'm mm. not someone who has lost my job. Therefore, I cannot do anything else. Mm. Mm. How to get motivated is your perspective. It's all about how you look at things. Right? I want to have a caveat here. Of course, I, I'm not asking you to be thinking that everything is hunky dory. No. Mm. There will be th times where you fall into that, that space again where you go, oh, things are not happening at all. Then reevaluate why are things not happening? Could it be the process I use? Could it be the people that I'm speaking to? I actually should be looking at other areas rather than this. So this is where you start questioning yourself. The more you do that, the more you think about, ah, there are other ways I could do similar things. 
And I think this is very, very important. And it's a, a pattern that people fall into all the time. It's just getting yourself out of the pattern. And human mm. beings are very, uh, sometimes quite lazy because we kind of got used to something. Let's stick with it. Let's mm. not feel uncomfortable. We're creatures of habit, aren't we? Of course. We don't want to feel uncomfortable. But this is where it, it helps you. When you're uncomfortable, it pushes you. It challenges mm. you. And physiologically, your body is going to react too. Right, and mm. when you have the adrenaline rush, then you think of different ideas. You go, oh yes, and this is how we can survive. That's how we have been surviving all these years mm. as human beings. Uh, and I think people have to start to think a little bit more. Don't dwell too much. Mm. Yes, recognize that you've gone through that. What can you do from that? You know that experience. What else can I do to move towards what is more important to yourself to to you? So moving from the more negative aspects of maybe what we find in an organizational setting and in our personal lives, obviously, um, to what I mentioned at the start, one of the things that really fascinates me is this idea of um, self-actualization, Maslow's hierarchy, and how we can really optimize potential. So moving from this um, area of just trying to survive through challenging times to really optimizing ourselves and i'm curious about in your work how much have involvement have you had with um, people you would describe as um, self-actualizing people like really peak performers who are at the top of their game high level executives people who've achieved a lot and are, and are do, doing big things and i know maslow studied this closely and he was really interested in what it was that made those people tick and uh I wonder if you've come across this and what your experience might be of that. And mm. is this something that there's just some people say they've won the genetic lottery and they are just go-getters? Or is this something that we can all try to attain? And, and how can we kind of bottle mm. some of those qualities? Mm. Maybe let's, let's clarify this a little bit more. I think Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs uh, is questionable from the start mm. okay. <laughs> and, and, and is not really... Uh, uh, justifiable in many ways, and research has found already that while it is still the 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 model that people use is a little bit more uh, outdated. There are far other uh, uh, other uh, theories that could explain about motivation, uh, such as self determining theory. And 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 I think if we look at it, not looking at just self actualization itself, but you know what propels people to achieve what they want to achieve. It's, it's all about the experience, the grit. What is it that you want? How can we get there? So it's, it's, there's, there's no easy way then to go through the process. Um, and, and Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs say that you need to fulfill the most fundamental first before you go all the way up. Uh, that is not necessarily true. If someone has a goal and they are able to establish various steps to go about doing it, they can reach to the point of self-actualization if we're going to be using uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs here for a comparison. But this is determined by you, right? How much you want to think, right? And, and how much you want to work hard for it. Let's take, for example, if someone wants to lose weight, right? Uh, they can do a lot of things to it. You can, you, you can actually go to the gym every day, uh, put in all the effort, get a trainer, etc. cetera. Uh, and if you do not actually think about your diet, it's going to be halfway there. You're not going to achieve your goals, right? So whatever you do, you have to realize 
a few things. Why am I doing this? What is the purpose of doing this? Right? And stating very clearly why you want to do that. And when you start doing that, backtrack a little bit. How can I get myself to that point? What is actually propelling me to do that? Right? Uh, and of course, everybody has different reasons for, for, for reaching that, that particular uh, stage there. Uh, and I think this comes back to the fundamental question here. Why are we doing this? What is the purpose? When you reach there to the stage, uh, what are you actually experiencing? Is that, let's use the word, maybe happiness. People always believe that status equates to happiness or reaching to a certain point. That's it. I reached my self-actualization uh, stage. But is that really true? Because human beings are greedy. We will always want to have the next big thing, mm. the next best thing. So what is more important? So is that what keeps these people, high-achieving people, moving forward is that it's never enough, that there are people who don't yes. accept accept their lot, they don't accept the status quo, they're just always trying yes. to push a bit further. And maybe they are just really good at um, understanding their why and planning the steps they need to take to get to those sort of, uh, whether it's a senior position or whatever it might be um, in terms of their own business, you know, the, a certain goal in terms yep. of... Yep. Uh, I, 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 one point is is knowing why you want to be there. Right, and then mm. carry on doing what you, you do. But there, there'll be a point where you say, yeah, I'm happy with this. I'm not going to pursue further. Because that's where it becomes a uh, a kind of unending process, right? You keep wanting to up mm. the next game, up the next game, up the next game. Then in a, in a kind of uh, a very practical way, you're going to ask yourself, is it worth doing that? Is it worth mm. you know sacrificing my 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 time with my family to pursue the next big thing, the next mm. role? Yeah, okay, you might be able to support your family and and so forth, but uh, are you willing to actually equate that to quality time? Mm. Equate that to to at what uh, cost? Yes, to at what cost to exactly? And and mm. you're not being very uh, sensible in the sense, mm. and and that's why the pursuit of happiness is actually not happiness at all because mm. there's always these things that uh, there are things that you're going to be sacrificing so but th this seems to be a societal pressure here this expectation that we need to ah. achieve these things in order to be happy right so is that where we've kind of lost our way in a let's say a, a capitalist environment or whatever this idea that we right. have to always be achieving and having this and having that and True. we're bombarded with these uh, external pressures and if we don't do those things then we're not a good enough person or we're well, not realizing our potential again it's how you look at yourself right mm. we will never be able to compare ourselves with i don't know uh, someone who is very, very successful in someone else's eyes because all of us are different motivation different make mm. while we are we are uh, uh kind of brainwashed by the societal uh, impression of what a successful person is mm. is that what you want i mean the, the fundamental question is why should we conform because everybody else is doing that? Does it mean mm. that those who don't conform are not successful? And what mm. is success to you? Success is not about how much uh, uh, money you have, what kind of uh, cars that you drive. Success to uh, individuals are very different, right? Mm. You might find it successful because you have a thousand subscribers to your podcast. 
hey, that's a success, uh, success in its own way. You don't need to have a, a go microphone just, just to be successful, right? <laughs> so I, I think this is where perspective comes in again. Just yeah. because people feel that they are being uh, forced to do so, yeah. is that really what you want? Mm. When you but reach the there, are you happy? People taking the time, though, to have that conversation with themselves, you know, do they even acknowledge that uh, yes. things they're striving for may not be what they really want? Do the, you know, do we need to encourage people to have that conversation and uh, acknowledge um, what's real and what is mm. fake somehow? Yeah, I, I think it is important because think about people who are in a high position or comfortable position that is what the uh, society uh, ascribe them to be, do you think they're really happy? Maybe they're happy because they have a lot of money in, in a bank, right? But how about other facets of their lives? Right? It's a constant wanting to be better than anybody else. Where do we stop? Where do we stop? And then I think this is where you need to have those conversation with yourself and, and not to be uh, led by common belief that you need to be successful to be uh, the CEO of an organization. You don't have to. Mm-hmm. You don't have to. You you can be comfortable being a, a junior manager and that's it. You know, that is success to you. We 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 all of us are too worried about what other people think about our, of, of us. Mm. Right. And then that added pressure we put on our, ourselves, like, oh yeah, we have to do this because you know everybody's doing that. Ask yourself that question. Are you living life for yourself or are you living life according to the rules of what other people dictate you to be? To, to be, right? This is very important because if you're doing that, then I can guarantee you, you would never be happy because there are so many people outside, right? There are so many people all over the world. They'll be telling you different things or you ascribe to, uh, subscribe to their, their perception and their beliefs and then you don't have your own uh, perception of who mm-hmm. you really are, then mm-hmm. that is very dangerous. That mm-hmm. is very dangerous. Mm. Yeah. yeah, good good words. This is something actually I'd like to explore with you a little is how much is personality something that – so, for instance, if you ask a kid what do you want to do when you grow up, say in this sort of Western um, conception, maybe they want to be a fireman, a police officer, a pilot, or a ninja. You know, <laughs> So uh, how much of that actually translates to mm-hmm. – the personalities that end up in those professions, right. how much of that is driven by the notion of it because it sounds cool or it looks cool versus do, do these professions really self-select? So mm. the people with the traits that mm. make them, say, good candidates for those roles, mm. they naturally move in that direction. You don't find someone like an eccentric artist working on the front line of a uh, of a police department, or maybe mm. you do, you know. So um, how much of that we, we put in place these sophisticated selection and assessment programs mm. but are you really just um, finding the best of the people who are already mm. predisposed to that type mm. of uh, environment or mm. is there still a lot of sifting the wheat from the, the chaff mm. as it were mm. I, I think it's interesting that you were talking about personality uh, itself because I, I think uh, we all know we might have predisposed traits but uh, we are also capable as human beings to react to situation as in your uh, your job uh, mm. when you need to make those crucial decisions you might be doing something that is really out of character but mm. at that particular instance you need to do that so I think uh, when we're talking about identifying the right personality for jobs itself 
um, there is no right or wrong is what the job requires. And mm-hmm. I think this is where personality uh, in itself can be quite uh, malleable in, in that sense because all of us have a particular uh, base trait really and how we react and how maybe also what you were saying in terms of uh, Maslow uh, or every other uh, theories about motivation. The motivation itself is also a, a perhaps a, a precursor or a factor that will impact the way we behave. So if we are really keen to get the job, we will behave in a way that uh, it fulfills the job description. And mm. on the other side, as an employer, they'll be looking at underneath uh, what kind of uh, traits you have and because as personality questionnaires goes, uh, we, who, uh, people like myself who use a personality questionnaire, we understand the function of it. We know how to uh, detect whether someone is actually giving us uh, a, you know, pretend to be good. Uh, yeah. Telling you what you want to hear. Yes, sort of thing. yes, kind of demand characteristics there. Um, yeah. we, we, we will be able to do that. And I think that's the the uniqueness of a uh, organization psychologist. We are training that way uh, and we will be able to probe a little bit more in terms of follow-up interviews after the assess- mm. assessments or getting the organization to do that. And I think this is where uh, the the line is drawn here as in how do we actually identify is this person the right person? Mm. Obviously, it is not a panacea. When we talk about personality we can have an underlying trait. We can react according to circumstances. But then if the right trigger is there, that person might actually react very differently from their base trait too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's where we get sociopath and psychopath in an in, in organization. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and we cannot also forget that they might be surrounded with the kind of environment that perpetuates such uh, negative behaviors. Uh, mm. within an organization. So personality is, is very, very interesting, but yet at the same time, it's also very complex because yes, sure. we we can't base on just a certain type of assessment to give uh, an, an employer, an organization, a full picture of an individual person because human beings are different. Mm. The question then arises for me about if an organization comes to you and says, this is uh, who we are and this is this the role we need to fulfill and this is the type of person that we would op- ideally like to recruit for that position, and then how often do you see where an organization, maybe the way that, that you mentioned how when you say you find that person, you put them in the role and it turns out the environment is actually uh, kind of dysfunctional in some way. There's mm. negativity or mm. poor leadership or whatever it might be. And that candidate who um, tick, tick the boxes is actually not really functioning well in the team because it's taking them in a different direction than mm. perhaps who they who they you thought they were or who they are. Mm. So how often do you see that kind of disconnect then between how a company positions itself? Mm. Maybe they don't really they need to perhaps reflect on their own themselves and um, and they think that just hiring the right person can fix their problems as opposed to, say, more of a um, systemic sort of cultural issue within the organization. Right. Uh, to your first question, uh, I don't see a lot of that. Reasoning mm. because even if they do happen, the organization is going to come and tell me uh, they've hired the wrong person. Uh, or or, or it's, it's something that organizations are not going to admit to it. 
Right. So what they do yeah, is yeah. they will uh, try to rectify. So they will always look at the person first mm. uh, and say, "Well, maybe this person needs a bit of more training, development in certain areas, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. However, when when an organization used that approach, they fail to realize that sometimes it could be uh, more than just a person's personality. As I said earlier, on, it could be the environment. It could be something very systemic within the organization, the culture. Uh, and sometimes people who uh, get into a new job might have that concept or delusion during interviews that this is the ideal organization I want to work in, and I'm glad I got an offer from them. Now, mm. in, in, during a course of interview, while the employer is actually assessing a candidate, the candidate is doing the same thing, especially if they will be interviewed by the line managers or their peers or the teammates, they will do a self-assessment. Do I really want to work with this group of people? Maybe not. Or maybe, yeah, I can deal with it because there are other attractive uh, factors there, perhaps you know, the brand of the company, the opportunity for development, or also the remuneration. So those, those could be factors that you know, uh, you, an individual could be attracted to join an organization. However, those illusions or those painted in a nice picture of a, of an organization by the employers might not necessarily be what it is when the individual joined the organization. And that's where there's a misalignment there. And when there's a misalignment, usually from the perspective of the individual, they will say, well, this is not what I expected. And there are certain things that is not what I, I thought this company is all about. So they either have to make a decision they can struggle and work within the organization and change their whole mindset about the organization and ad adapt and adopt to it, right? Uh, mm. Again, going back a little more of what the motivation is. If their motivation to join this company, as I stated uh, earlier on, and one of it is being remuneration, and then they will have all other concerns with, uh, attached to that and is uh, able to, to actually support my family, to have an income, etc. So they will mitigate the, the discomfort that they feel in the organization or the misalignment there and adjust according to the, to, you know, uh, the pros and cons there. Uh, some people will be very successful in doing that because then they are very focused. The whole focus of the, getting a job is because of supporting my family, uh, to have a career, uh, some people might not be able to do, uh, deal with that. So they find themselves in a position where they will say, well, either I do something about it or I leave the organization. Usually you always see the organization trying to rectify, as I said earlier on, either to manage the individual in terms of um, their behavior, their mindset, uh, giving them training and development However, this is just one piece of that whole organizational puzzle. Mm. Uh, often organization finds it easier to change a person. If they succeed in doing that, great. If they don't, then they would depart, you know, they kind of part ways. Uh, and that, that's where the whole process of recruiting again, and then they will think, okay, maybe we should actually tighten up the job description. Let's do a little bit more, do more mm. assessment, etc. Uh, very, very uh, often they will neglect to look at the structure. 
the organization policies? Uh, are we actually using the right way of doing our job analysis? Are we actually being practical when we, we, we look at the job description itself? Because this is an ideal candidate we want, uh, but in the market, that might not be that kind of person. So what do we do? So I mm-hmm. think this is where there's always a conflict there. But organization will always go to the first thing first. Deal with the individual, but they'll never look at their, uh, their own structure. So I think mm-hmm. that, that is something that organization needs to start thinking very, very carefully, mm-hmm. especially at this present moment where uh, a lot of us are actually working from home and the work environment is now very blurred because it's a combination of home and work where do you draw the line? And and I mm. think organization is still struggling uh, at this present stage to actually define that. Um, and this mm. is actually very, very important to, to highlight there. We, we hear a lot about organizations hire for culture. They hire for the fit, right? They look at the candidate. Is this person... <laughs> do they? Uh, will they fit into what we have? Is that the... How do we get to that point? Is that the right way to think of it? Should we not be thinking perhaps of um, how can we adapt our culture to the personalities of the people that we employ in a way, if you know what I mean? So rather than trying to either just find these cookie-cutter people, maybe we're missing the nuance that uh, that could be brought, the creativity and the new Mm. ways of thinking Mm. outside the box or how we've traditionally done Mm. things. Mm. I mean, traditionally, organization will always say we want to find someone to fit our culture. But then this is where the organization needs to think. As you rightfully said, there are different types of personality, different nuances and everything. Uh, Do we really want a a, a cookie-cut person coming in? There, There is a danger when you get people who are very similar to all your other employees already. So it means that the organization will self-sabotage really themselves because if you get people who are similar, there's no innovation. Uh, If you are thinking of growth, this is definitely a wrong way to approach uh, in terms of recruitment. You want Mm -hmm. to be looking at uh, a diverse group of people. You want to Mm -hmm. be able to look at people who are going to bring new ideas if your aim, if your organizational strategy is about growth, but if you're talking about just maintaining, you know, um, uh, the business as usual, then go ahead, find someone who fit your culture. Then the second question is, what exactly is your culture? Mm. How are you actually translating your culture to the work of uh, every employee? Are they all practicing it? Mm. Are they aware of what your culture is? And many a times we see organization will be, uh, you know, talking about their culture. This is our vision. This is our mission. But when it translates to the actual work, those three things does not really uh, do not really actually fit into uh, the day to day work. And mm. then how do you actually close that gap? There's always always this gap. And culture fit is one way, I think, for organization to cover the fact that they are not willing to change because a mm. culture, as we all know, evolve and change. Everywhere else in the world is doing that. Cultural the differences, cultural changes. We adapt to what is happening around us. And as an organization, uh, don't, if they don't do that, then you are just going to be uh, seeing the kind of attrition rate because you are uh, the, the turnover, because you are actually... Um, recruiting the same people. And these are the same people who you already know will not work 
will not be successful in the role, then why waste the time to do so? And and I think it's also about the um, how effective the HR is able to uh, highlight like this point to the line managers or those who are involved in rec- recruiting. Uh, it has to be uh, discussed and not just take a mandate and say, well, okay, this is what you want. I'm going to find someone for you. Uh, but if it doesn't align with the organizational uh, vision or, or uh, uh, goals, then it's not going to work. And and usually also organization will always put uh, or try to identify someone who is going to be able to do uh, or bringing X amount of money for the organization. I think working in, in an organization is no longer just about dollars and cents. It's, it's about uh, you want people to be committed to the job. You want people to be staying mm-hmm. there. You want to develop them at the same time. So it's a very complex thing. It's not just it's easy. Let's get mm-hmm. someone to, uh, you know, put bumps on the seats, really. You're not mm. doing that. I've seen this in different uh, studies and things before where they ask people in workplaces what their um, sort of motivations are and remuneration um, generally falls down the list, right? If people are motivated because they feel they belong to a good team, they're working with a purpose, there's meaning in what they're doing, and that's being recognised, those um, non-tangible or intangibles uh, have a lot of value and just by paying people more, expecting their productivity productivity to increase, um, does, there's not a linear relationship between those things. The outcomes, in fact, it can push people away because mm. if they're not invested emotionally, let's say, in their uh, their work, then no amount of money will make them any more motivated. In fact, it makes them feel like they've sold their soul to a certain extent, and mm. uh, there's an erotic uh, sort of counterproductive uh, outcome from that, which I've seen in some um, studies of this type of thing. So is that uh, something you negotiate, let's say, with employers about uh, how do we motivate people as well? Or where does the sort of the beginning and end of your role mm. as an organizational college, uh, psychologist and consulting to organizations? Mm. Well, I, I think one of the uh, things that I, I do as an Oxide, uh, we don't go into that detail as in, you know, advising people to to, to rethink the, 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 uh, uh, the goals of, of what have you to, to be mindful of that. But we remind organization, it is important, as you mentioned already, uh, remuneration might not be the most important uh, motivator here. A lot, and it, I think also we have to understand now, we have this intergeneration uh, uh, employees, uh, workforce. Uh, each generation has different different uh, motivators there let's take a look at the younger generation now um, it's not about the money anymore it's about they want to see what the organization is doing for the environment uh, what are they doing in terms of uh, corporate uh, responsibility here and if they feel that this is the organization is doing good then they feel good being part of it. I mean, it's about uh, uh, social psychology here, you know, being in, in, in a group mm. where I feel that I'm really, really proud of. Uh, if this particular organization is not doing that, you can pay me lots of money. I still will not join you because it mm. doesn't align with my own values. So mm. values mm. has become a very, very important thing, but yet a very difficult thing to measure uh, mm. because it is something that is not very uh 
synonymous throughout. Everybody has different values. So mm. one thing that I would always encourage people to to ask or in an interview is, what is it that you want to see you know, uh, in terms of your values? Uh, and then, then do that reflection as an organization, whether our values are aligned with them. You know, with the values of the uh, uh, candidates, and at the same time, the candidate is is also doing all those uh, uh, due diligence here. They will be checking on uh, your 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 website. They'll be asking around. They will be looking at more information about you when you say you are doing certain things uh, to help the environment. For example, what exactly have you done? You know, are are you doing that, or are you just uh, saying that just to drum up that kind of publicity, or are you genuinely doing it? So I think this is where organization can no longer hide because with the the uh, uh, the advent of technology, it's very easy to Google someone's uh, name and then you look at what they, they have been doing uh, mm. for their organization uh, in that respect. So I think uh, when it comes to advising organization, this is one thing I always ask them. Uh, apart from a job description that you want to find the person for the job uh, to free up the role, Using assessment has to be uh, done very delicately. This is not the only way you assess someone. You mm -hmm. need to actually have an interview, have this frank conversation, uh, and then not just assume or presume that this person is going to fit you, right? Mm -hmm. Because they are assessing you at the same time. Um, a very good example is um, I, I remember a uh, an, well, an organization was trying to uh, recruit for a marketing uh, director. And they went through all the, the, the processes, you know, uh, interviews, interviews by, you know, uh, peer, uh, line managers, dotted managers, and what have you, four or five rounds of interviews, right? And then eventually they say, okay, now we think we need to do a uh, assessment with this person. Um, we need to give them a personality questionnaire. Mm. And my first question was, why? Mm. And what more say, do you well, need to know <laughs> yeah, what do you need to know oh uh we we just want to put it as one of the processes that to show that we we have actually you know covered all, all bases i said no that's not the reason for assessment itself there must be a reason for doing so and mm. then when i probe a little bit longer i say okay what else have you tried to identify whether this person is the is right for the role and they said well we had a lot of interviews etc etc i say okay but the role is marketing director have you given them a, a task or work sample test, something that you can actually test their skills? Mm. No. I said, well, you've gone through all the interviews and none of you have actually th thought about that. Don't you think that is actually very crucial? <laughs> mm. Because you need to know whether this person is actually capable of doing the job. Mm. So this is where a lot of organizations fail. They always think, well, these aren't the processes that everybody else is doing it. So let's do this. Let's do the interview. Mm. Let's do the assessment. And then once we get the personality, oh, okay, we will decide this one is better or, or the other person is better. I said, this is not how you do assessment. And assessment is not uh, used for selection in that sense. Because when you do that, you are creating discrimination and it's bias. And if you are in a country where there is very strong discrimination law, you will be in deep trouble. Because mm. any candidate who finds that you have used this methodology, uh, the way you assess them or select them, they can question you. They can sue you. And not forgetting any assessment processes, you need to also have the consent of the uh, candidate. For example, mm. in a personality questionnaire. And if they have 
giving you the consent, they can also remove that consent by saying, I do not want you to use the uh, information, right? And if they challenge the way you use it, you have to be very sure your processes uh, for the whole selection recruitment pro uh, uh, protocol is very robust. And mm -hmm. I can guarantee you a lot of companies, they don't really have a very robust protocol in that sense. So this mm -hmm. is where it becomes very dangerous. Uh, mm -hmm. So as, as coming back to what you said, <clears throat> um, I think organization needs to, to think a little bit more about what they are actually doing, why they are doing those things. You know, when you are trying to attract someone to join you, are you using the right protocol? What is your 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 uh, ideal job description, and whether the practical job description itself does it really fit with the talents in the market? All these are concerns that organization need need uh, need to actually look at it, and and not just do it because we have been doing it for the past ten years. Therefore, we're using this process. No, and I I would implore HR people to really stand up against their line manager and say, look, this is not proper. This is not right, and challenge their own policies. Because you know, if you just do it according to what you have always been doing, uh, there is a, a chance that you will be challenged one day, either externally or internally, by by people working for you or people who wants to work for you. Uh, so, organization needs to be very, very mindful of that. Mm. To close out, something I, I wanted to chat with you briefly about uh, is the, you mentioned intergenerational um, factors in organisations, and I'm also curious about the um, sort of the intercultural, cross-cultural factors in organisations. And obviously, Hong Kong being a very multicultural city, uh, where we have a lot of expats working alongside um, sort of local Hong Kong Chinese um, professionals, and uh, you know there, there is definitely differences in um, the way that sort of relationships operate, um, all, all manner of things, you know, just different cultural values and things and how they interface. And I'm curious uh, about what some of those challenges are. And there's also a lot of benefits to that too, I think. So maybe you could speak just a little bit about um, the cross-cultural uh, factors in organisations in a place like Hong Kong and, mm. and elsewhere. And, and this is particularly relevant in an increasingly sort of globalised economy mm. where we do see expats. Uh, mm. It's not just Hong Kong or these mm. global capitals. It's becoming relevant in many, many countries. Mm. I, I think for – because I'm an expat myself, uh, mm. being originally from Singapore. I've been in Hong Kong for many years. Uh, one thing is never take for granted – and assume what works in your country applies in a country that you're adopted or you are working as an expert. Never do that. And I think being humble is also very important to learn about the local culture itself. Um, and please also also do not apply the uh, uh, kind of Asians have a bit more collectivist uh, uh thinking and in uh, Westerners have more individualistic kind of way of doing things. Uh, mm. This is a definition that was... Um, the Hofstede's... Uh, yes, yes, stuff, yeah. yes. It's a very cultural uh, definition. Uh, but I challenge that because think about all the uh, overseas Asians. They will be exposed to Western country uh, education and, and Western uh, concept. They will bring with them a very mixed concept as an Asian, but with a Western perspective or Western lens. Mm. 
Right? Mm. They're not going to behave what Hofstra believe that all of us are, all Asians are collectivist in the way we, we do things, in the way we think. Mm. Think about in Asia itself, how many different countries do we have in Asia? And they all behave differently. So mm. we are not the same. So this is, this I must say, in my mind, is a misrepresentation of Asian people because mm. Asian people are not like that. And flipping on the other side, we cannot, we cannot also say that Westerners are individualistic. There are cases where in countries, people, uh, Western country, where the people actually exhibit collectivistic uh, behavior. So that definition is not appropriate anymore. And we are not Confucianism uh, kind of uh, driven as Asians. Mm-hmm. So that I think it, it is, it needs updating and that is the wrong way. And because we are kind of uh, grooming that way to believe that. So a lot of Westerners who come to Asia, they say, oh, this is how they behave. Therefore, they are like that. Don't ascribe that because that is not fair and that's not true. Some people might find it difficult to communicate. It has something to do more of their personality rather than culture. Hmm. Right? Culture might play a small part, but maybe not. And I think Asian people generally if they are not being exposed to uh, maybe a Western education, they generally believe there are certain ways of doing things. They are more cordial. Asian people are not, you know, uh, generally they are not uh, rude or they are not loud. But there are there are people who are like that. So I'm I'm not trying to say that we we are all good and and, and not uh, uh, nasty. Mm. Majority of the Asian people, are like, to, in order to close that gap, remove all biases and perception. Learn about the culture, understand the culture, see what works for them, right? If I, as an expert, I need to change the way I think, change. Because you need to adopt the country that you you are uh, working in, right? Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be expecting people to actually uh, uh, kind of abide by what you believe in. Mm-hmm. Yes, we are working in international uh, uh kind of mindset here, globalization. And that is where, while we need to understand cultural nuances, we need to we also need to apply international standards, right? Mm. For example, English being the, the medium. Uh, then be appreciative that some people might not understand certain things that you say. If you are a native speaker, uh, sorry, I shouldn't use the word native speaker because that always uh, <laughs> creates different mm. concepts here. Uh, mm. If you are an English-speaking person, yeah, mm. you must also understand that some people might not have the kind of education you have. Give them time, understand them. Why not do the reverse? Learn their language, learn Cantonese. Mm. This will definitely going to help you as an expert, right? Mm. And and I think this is where we will be able to reduce a lot of discrimination, reduce a lot of bias, and especially reduce that kind of unconscious bias where certain things we say, like "Oh, look at that chink." This is actually something that we will probably say it as a Westerner because this is a kind of banter, right? But that kind of banter itself is discriminatory. Mm, or, very damaging. Yeah. yeah, it's very damaging to the, the individual p- person too. Right? Can mm. you imagine? It's the same thing on the other side when we say, oh, look at that uh, that uh, foreigner. You know, we use derogatory thing. It's the same thing. So I think both sides needs to bring to that, that table the understanding. Mm. We need to accommodate each other. We need to be nicer to each other. Mm. I think um, what you're saying 
starts from acknowledging the individuality of people, right? That not uh, making assumptions that somebody must be a certain way because of, uh, you know, where they're from or, you know, any physical features they may have, that we're all individual mm. and we all fall along some spectrum of behaviours that may have cultural influences or for sure they'll have cultural influences. Yep. but we cannot all be lumped into the same category and that getting to know people at their personal level yep. um, will sort of break down a lot of the, uh, the sort of the xenophobic type barriers that we put up when we just don't understand other ways of mm. being in the world. Mm. And uh, I, I guess that's um, where it has to begin. And and by making an effort to understand where people are coming from um, figuratively and literally, then that uh, can uh, also help to yeah. um, break down the ignorance barrier. Yes, definitely. I mean, and people also appreciate you making effort. I mean, if you go, uh, when we can travel again, you know, or when you have traveled before, you go to a foreign country, when you speak their language, even in, 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 a, in maybe a rudimentary f- a form of it, they appreciate it. It's the same thing here uh, in Asia. You know, people appreciate that because at least you're making an effort. And I think that starts from you kind of instilling that kind of, uh, perception in your head that I need to try, I need to try. Mm -hmm. Then you will assimilate into the culture very, very easily. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I know there are experts here who still believe that I'm going to come to Asia, but I'm going to be uh, staying very close to all my mates, you know, people who speak the same language. I'm not going to associate with the local people. This is a wrong way of actually thinking. Then what's Mm -hmm. the point of being an expat? The whole point of being an expat is to go somewhere else and to enjoy and at the same time learn about the culture. Right, mm. and and I think this 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 will be uh, is is not the right way to to enjoy in a working experience in a different country. Learn to mm. ab- enjoy the culture, uh, and and you you will find it so much more pleasant being in in, in Asia. Mm. Yeah, good good point. All right, no thanks very much, uh, Austin, for your time and your thoughts. How can people get in touch with you, and uh, if they want to engage your services and their organisations, what's the best way to, sure. to reach out? They can reach out to me uh, um, on my website. Uh, that's www.omnisci.com, or they can listen to me on my own podcast uh, site chat at omnisci.com. These are the two ways they can actually get me. Very cool. Well, uh, yeah, again, I really appreciate your time and thoughts. Um, it's been a really interesting conversation for me, and I've got a lot out of it. So um, all the best with the rest of 2020, and hopefully that your Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Right. Thanks so much. Talk to you later. Right. Thanks. Bye bye.